right, uh, welcome to Beyond Barriers with Jeff Scoop and Jen Christ. Uh, tonight's guest, special guest, is Daryl Davis. Daryl, welcome to the program. Thank you, Jeff, for having me. Thank you, Jennifer. Glad to be here. All right. <laughs> Daryl, uh, um, I want to hear a little bit for the public. You know, you and I have been on, uh, on a number of programs together already, and, and we've spoken publicly and a number of things. But uh, for, the, for the listening audience and viewing audience, uh, could you tell a little bit about who you are, your background, what you do, and, and all that? Sure. My name is Daryl Davis. I was born in Chicago. My parents are from uh, Virginia. And I'm 62 years of age. Music is my profession. I play all over this country and around the world but uh, studying race relations has been my obsession. And I've been doing this now professionally for about 35, 36 years in between music gigs. I wrote a book on the Ku Klux Klan, went around the country interviewing a lot of leaders and a lot of members, and then it branched out into other uh, white supremacist organizations and individuals, uh, neo-Nazis, alt-right, uh, white Aryan resistance, uh, et cetera. And I've come across a lot of people uh, some, you know, we have in common, you and I and, uh, and Jennifer, uh, we know some of the same people. And I'm working on my second book currently, which I hope to have finished by, by the end of the year. And I've had the great pleasure of, of, of uh, meeting uh, Jeff Scoop, our host tonight, one of our hosts tonight, and uh, develop, developing a friendship with him, a good friendship. I'm looking forward to uh, continuing it. And I'm looking forward to the day when I can meet Jennifer uh, in person. I, uh, I spoke with her father some years ago over the phone there in Pennsylvania, but I've, I've not had the pleasure of meeting her yet. Yeah, and we'd like to thank you as well for uh, helping us out at Beyond Barriers, the nonprofit that we started, and Daryl's also part of the team uh, here at Beyond Barriers, <clears throat> and, and we're really honored to, to have him on board for that. Um, one of the things that, for the viewing audience, that Daryl has personally helped over 200 people disengage from from uh, the white supremacist movement, Daryl. Yes, I have, and I, you know, I, I don't like to take credit as being the person who converted them. I believe truly that they converted themselves, but I've been the impetus in supplying them with uh, information and things for them to think about. In other words, planting a seed and allowing them the opportunity to get to know me as a human being and me, you know, looking at them as human beings and having these conversations of getting to know one another. And I think, you know, really that's the key. A missed opportunity for, uh, for dialogue is a missed opportunity for conflict resolution. I'm a strong believer in that. And so, you know, you, you get, you know, and I've learned a lot from them too. You know, I've learned a whole lot as well. And it's made me a better person. And hopefully, you know, the, the information I've provided for, uh, for them uh, when they have renounced uh, that belief and, and chosen a different direction has also uh, helped them and they can inspire others. Absolutely. You know, um, you and I, we first met when I was still involved in the movement in uh, 2016. And, and uh, you, you planted a seed in me that, that uh, it took a while for me to wake up and, and fully de-radicalize, you know, and disengage from the movement. But uh, meeting you was, was very pivotal in my own journey. And, and uh, uh, if you could tell the viewing audience a little bit about how we met and, and going back there onto uh, into your film as well. Sure. Uh, well, a documentary titled uh, Accidental Courtesy was being made about my work traveling the country and interviewing a white supremacist and white nationalist, etc. And uh, Jeff Scoop, uh, this was his day to be interviewed. And we were down in Alabama, in uh, Montgomery, Alabama, 
And I was at the hotel uh, waiting to be called, to, told, told to come over and come to this little uh, diner type place, uh, hot dog and burger grill, where uh, Hank Williams Sr., the father of country music, would also frequent and supposedly he wrote the song, Hey, Hey, Good Looking, on a napkin. They were at the, uh, at the counter. And uh, Jeff was supposed to meet me there and they were gonna you know, film a conversation between the two of us, expressing our views on, uh, on white supremacy and on race. And so the director and producer and camera crew had already gone down there to set up and get the lighting right, the camera angles and all that kind of stuff. And they left me with their rental car and I was to drive there and, uh, and come in and Jeff would be seated in this booth and I would meet him there and we would you know, get right into it. So they would, they would capture our first meeting on camera. And I knew who Jeff Scoop was. I knew who he was uh, several years prior to, uh, to my meeting him. I'd never met him before, never talked to him, but I knew, I knew of his reputation. I'd seen him on TV and in YouTube and different footage. So anyway, I arrived there and I saw Jeff sitting on a bench uh, outside of the, uh, of the bar, of the uh, diner. And uh, I thought to myself, well, yeah, well, that looks like him right there. I wonder why he's not in there. But anyway, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and get out and say hello to him. So I got out and I walked over and I said, hi. I said, are you Jeff Scoop? He said, yes. I said, I'm Daryl Davis. And we shook hands and we chatted for a bit. And then we walked in together like, you know, <laughs> you know we've been together all day or something. And the uh, director and producer were like, oh, well, wait a minute. Hold on. <laughs> I thought, you, you know, this, this wasn't how it's supposed to happen, but it is how it happened. So let's go ahead and get started. So they put us in the booth and, uh, you know, we started talking. And we really hit it off. You know, we were having a pretty good conversation going back and forth. And then at some point in the uh, conversation, uh, uh, Jeff like, like switched modes. And uh, he, he got into his um, NSM mode, his National Socialist Movement mode. And he said, uh, I, I will fight to the last bullet for my people. I'm thinking to myself, okay, now, now where did that come from? And, you know, and, and I realized that this was something that he had to say that he, you know, in, in order to, to, to stand his ground, because that's what he was there for. But I could tell that just in talking with this guy, you know, he was a human being. He was no different than I am. You know, we, we liked a lot of the same things. Uh, we were having a good conversation, uh, but that was not why he was there. That was not why he was a leader in the movement, you know, uh, which he led, the National Socialist Movement. So that had to come in there. And I never, I, I didn't feel any animosity about it. In fact, uh, you know, after the interview was over, he and I hung out there in the, uh, in, in the grill and talked a little bit about some things. And we exchanged phone numbers. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, you know, when I, when I got out of the vehicle and walked over to the, to the bench where he was seated, I shook hands with a stranger. But when I left the uh, grill that night to go, back to, the, <clears throat> excuse me, to go back to the hotel, I shook hands with a friend, even though he was still in the movement. I, I just sense, you know, this guy and I have more in common than we do in contrast. <clears throat> and later on, I would come to hear that uh, he had left the movement. And I thought, wow, you know, um, I'm going to reach out to him. So I called him on the phone, ho hoping, you know, the number that I had was still good because now it was like, you know, four years had passed. And uh, it was still good. And we talked and uh, we arranged to get together. I think I spent maybe, I don't know, maybe 45, well, I talked to him initially for about 15, 20 minutes, and then we called each other back, we talked a lot longer, and I had a lecture coming up in, uh, in New York. 
And I thought, you know, this would be, you know, really be cool. You know, why don't I invite Jeff to this lecture? He, you know, he can share the program with me. I'll split the money with him, whatever. And I called the uh, person who hired me and said, hey, you know, would this be cool? Would you like me to bring in somebody who had membership in the NSM? In fact, he was the commander of the NSM, who has now left the movement. He can also give you the perspective from being on the inside. I can only give you a certain perspective. <clears throat> so this way, you have your uh, audience would have a more well-rounded view of how this supremacy thing works and, and, and radicalization. So they talked it over, called me back, said, yeah, that would be great. So we've been friends ever since, and we've toured uh, together a little bit, both uh, physically and uh, virtually. Right, right. I mean, it's the power of dialogue. And, and I got to say, I mean, when I got out of the movement, there was a lot of, uh, you know, you get a lot of blowback from your old comrades, your old friends, people that, you know, don't like that you left and, and things like that. So I was really, for a while, especially, I was really struggling, you know, with not having a very good support network. And, and I have to say, I mean, uh, for somebody that I had only had met, one time when you called me, I remember it as vi vividly, you know, you, I could, I could hear the concern in your voice and, and the, the compassion and, and, and all that. And just meeting you when we met originally in 2016, you know, I, I agree with everything that you say. I mean, we had more in common certainly than we did differences. And the fact that, that you reached out like you did and that you were concerned about how I was doing, you know, like, like that was the reason why, uh, you called and to to check in on me and and things like that. And I you know I thought wow this is somebody that I hadn't talked to in in a couple of years, and uh, I could I could hear it in your voice and and uh, that you're just a compassionate, um, amazing human being. And and Daryl, that's why I believe you have been able to reach so many people um, over these years that you've been uh, involved in this stuff is because of dialogue for one is is a is a huge is a huge thing. And that it comes from the heart. It comes from a, a place of, of compassion and, and things like that. And, and I want to tell the listening audience a little bit about, um, about that first meeting. Um, one thing that really got to me and, and uh, about your story was when you uh, were in the Boy Scout parade as a, as a young man and, and how that and I'd like you to talk a little bit about that and, and um, share with the listening audience um, a little bit about that. But I mean, for me, that really touched me deeply that a child would be subjected to something like that um, because of because of a movement like I was a part of and that sort of thinking would do that to to someone, um, a good, wonderful person like yourself. And it's not that's just this is just one example of something where how racism and hate harmed uh, someone someone else in in society and these stories um, and these experiences are something that so many people in this country and around the world have been through because of hate and racism and uh, for me this this was incredibly moving so I, I would like you to share that uh, that that life experience. Sure. Well, what Jeff is talking about is an experience I had at the age of 10 in 1968. I just moved to a town called Belmont, Massachusetts, which is a suburb of Boston. And I was one of two black children in the entire school, myself in fourth grade. There was a little black girl in second grade who I only saw at, like at recess time 
or lunchtime. So all of my friends were white. And a lot of my guy friends were members of the Cub Scouts and they invited me to join. So I joined, you know, we had fun. Everybody was happy with each other. And we had a parade, a march from Lexington to Concord, Massachusetts to commemorate the ride of Paul Revere. The streets were blocked off. Sidewalks were crowded with nothing but white people. And it was the Cub Scouts, the Girl Scouts, the Brownies, the Boy Scouts, the 4-H Club, and some other organizations all participating in this parade. And I was the only black person there. And my den mother let me carry the American flag. And I'm marching down the street with, with my particular Cub Scout troop, other troops in front of us and behind us. And people were like waving and cheering and yelling, the British are coming and all that kind of stuff. And somewhere down the parade route, suddenly I began getting hit with uh, bottles and soda pop cans and uh, little rocks and just street debris. And it was a group of spectators off to my right maybe four or five of them. I remember there being a couple of kids, maybe a, a year or two older than me and a couple of adults who were throwing things. And because this had never happened to me before, my first thought was those people over there don't like the scouts. That's how naive I was. I did not realize that I was the only scout getting hit until my den mother, my cub master, my troop leader all came running over. And these are all white people. And they huddled over me with their bodies and protected me and escorted me out of the danger. And I kept saying, why are they hitting me? Why are they hitting me? I didn't do anything. They're like, shh, move along, Daryl. Hurry up, move along, move along. It'll be okay. So they never answered my question. And uh, when I got home, my mom and dad asked me, you know, how did you fall down and get all scraped up? You know, they're like cleaning me up, putting band-aids on me. I told them I didn't fall down. I told them exactly what had happened. And for the first time in my life, my mother and father sat me down and explained to me what racism was. And believe it or not, I had never heard the word racism. At the age of 10, I had never heard the word racism. I had no clue what they were talking about. Now, there's a reason for this that I didn't tell you, but I'll tell you now. My parents were in the U.S. Foreign Service, so I grew up as an American embassy brat. Every year, we lived in different countries, every two years, actually. You go to a country, and you're there for two years with the American embassy, come back home here to the States for a little while, you go back overseas, live in another country for two years. So I lived in Africa, I lived in Europe, and I've been in 57 different countries between traveling with my parents and traveling now as an adult musician. And so when I was overseas as a young child, uh, going to school, my classmates were from Italy, Germany, Australia, Nigeria, Japan, Russia. It was like a United Nations of little kids. That's what I grew up around. Everybody around me was from a different country. Of course, there were my fellow Americans as well. But we all played together. We all worked together. We all had slumber parties together. To me, that was the norm. That's what I grew up around. Racism did, did not exist. I had, you know, I had no clue. Now, maybe you know, we didn't speak the same language all the time. I didn't speak Czechoslovakian or something, but I had a little Czechoslovakian friend. Um, but we, we, we worked together, we played together, had slumber parties, and we all got along. But then when I would come home, after my dad's assignment back here to the States, uh, I would either be in an all black school or a black and white school, meaning a still segregated school or a newly integrated one. And there was not the amount of diversity in my classroom that I had overseas. And so uh, I wasn't accustomed to, to this racism thing. And when my parents told me why these people were doing this to me, I did not believe my parents. And my parents never lied to me. You know, I'm an only child, so 
they always answered my questions, gave me solutions to problems I may have had, or gave me the tools by which I could do it myself. But, you know, I, I remember this distinctly on this day, I did not believe them. I thought they were lying. And because my 10 year old brain could not process the idea that someone who had never seen me before, someone who had never spoken with me would want to hurt me for no other reason than the color of my skin. It just made no sense. And so I didn't believe them. Well, a month and a half, maybe two months later, that same year, April 4th, 1968, uh, Martin Luther King was assassinated. And I remember that very clearly. Every major city, nearby Boston, my hometown, Chicago, Washington, D.C., New York, Philadelphia, Los Angeles, all burned to the ground in the name of this new word that I had just learned, racism. And so now I realize this thing called racism does exist, but I didn't understand why. Why don't people like each other just because of the color of their skin? So I formed a question in my own head at the age of 10, which was, how can you hate me when you don't even know me? And for the next 52 years, I've been looking for the answer to that question. And I bought books on black supremacy, white supremacy, uh, the Nazis in Germany, the neo-Nazis over here, the Ku Klux Klan, you name it. And all of my books talked about it, but they didn't give me the reason why. And I knew this was learned behavior. You weren't born hating people. So if it was learned, it can be unlearned. And so because my books did not address it for me, I decided I'm gonna go find out for myself. So where would you go to find out about this kind of thing? Well, I went to people who joined organizations that practice hating, like the Ku Klux Klan. You know, I figured, you know, I'll talk to these guys. You know, they can answer the question for me. Why, why do they hate me? And believe me, they told me. <laughs> they told me and uh, I interviewed them and I wrote a book. And, uh, but here's the interesting thing. Even though I'm sitting there talking with these people and they're telling me to my face, sitting three feet in front of me, that I'm inferior, that black people are prone to crime, we're lazy, we don't wanna work, we, we prefer to scam the government welfare system, that we're born with smaller brains than white people. And I'm listening to all this stuff. But even through that, I can see that this person is a human being. He just has some different ideas than I have. But I'm gonna listen because I'm here to learn. But the important thing is this, you have to know who you are when you go into a situation like that. You know, it, it doesn't matter what the topic is, whether it's race, whether it's some other controversial topic like abortion or global warming or the current presidency or the war in the Middle East, nuclear weapons, whatever. You have a position, they have an opposite position. Know who you are, but also study them. Try to understand where they're coming from and their position. Put yourself in their shoes. Can you at least try to understand where they're coming from? So that's what I would do. And in, and in doing so, I had the confidence that I didn't have to worry about being offended because this person is telling me I'm a criminal and all they see is my black skin. They're telling me that I'm lazy, all they see is my black skin. Telling me I got a small brain, all they see is my black skin. And I knew, hey, you know, I have a college education. Uh, I've been around the world. I speak two languages. Um, so who, who's this guy talking to? But I'm not going to attack him. I'm not going to attack him because he doesn't know me. So I don't have to worry about believing it. Yes, it's offensive, but I'm not offended because it's not true. I've never been in prison. I've never been on welfare. Um, I've never measured my brain size, but I'm sure it's the same size as anybody else's. So why do I have to worry about him? I'm gonna to listen to him. And in doing so, 
that threw him off his game and his wall began to come down because no matter how far I've been from this country and I've been all around the world, no matter how different people are that I've met on the other side of the earth, one thing we all have in common is that we all are human beings. And basically we all want four things. We want to be loved. We want to be respected. We want to be heard. And we want the same things for our families as they want for theirs. So if I can understand those four basic principles and give that to somebody, you know, then we can communicate because they realize, hey, you know what? I'm not that much different than you are. So that lowered the wall. And when the wall was lowered and I allowed that person to air their views, regardless of how vile they may have been, then that person was willing to, to give me the platform and allow me to air my views. And rather than, a, than attack that person for, for, for being offensive, like saying, you know, no, you're the one who's a criminal. You're the one who's, who's burning crosses in people's yards and bombing <clears throat> people's churches and hanging black people from trees and all this kind of stuff. Rather than attack them, I defended myself. I said, well, you know, I've never been to prison. I've never been on welfare. Um, I have a college degree. You know, my SAT scores got me in there. So that caused that person to have to think about that. You know, they're not going to change overnight. You know, it takes a while. But they had to think about, you know, I just had a conversation with a black guy for three hours. And, you know, what he said about such and such made sense, but he's black. But it was true, but he's black. So they were having a cognitive dissonance kind of thing going on where they knew it was true, but they didn't want to accept it because it came from a black person. So that became their dilemma. And so they had to decide, okay, I found out this is indeed true. So do I disregard this guy's skin color and believe the truth? and change my direction? Or do I continue living a lie just because this guy's black? So that, I, I put the ball in their part without attacking them. And I think you know, that's the key. We spend too much time in this country talking about the other person or talking at the other person or talking past the other person. Why don't we just put our ego in check and spend some time talking with the other person? Absolutely. And, and that's, that's why I believe you get through to so many people is because you're willing to sit down and you're willing to listen. And, you know, coming out of the movement myself, <clears throat> excuse me, coming out of the movement myself, I mean, that's, that's one of the biggest things, you know, as you know, in, in that world, at least the people that are involved in it, they believe respect is everything. So if you listen to their viewpoints as vile and disgusting as they might be, um, and, and listen with an open mind, then they have to do the same thing because respect demands it, you know, like they, they have to uh, listen. So um, thank you so much for sharing that. That was um, really incredible. Uh, Jen, do you have any questions or, or uh, input on, on that? <clears throat> um, just that when you were speaking about uh, what happened when you were 10 years old and how your parents sat you down and explained racism and you had never even heard that word or what it, what it even was, it kind of hit home uh, for me because just a, maybe six, not even six months ago, um, I had to sit my little boys down and explain to them what it was. And they were, I mean, I, right, I, sometimes I wish uh, when I think back, I, I would have been secretly recording it with a video camera because their reaction was actually, I, I was crying. <laughs> I was crying because I was so proud 
that these little kids that came out of me came from me and my parenting um, compared to where I came from and how I was raised are, is just like night and day. And they were offended and angry actually <laughs> that anyone would ever um, not like someone just because of their skin color. And uh, it was a lot of emotions in the car that day, a lot of emotions coming from them and from me. And you know, so, if, if I had, if I'd had a negative, let's, let's just say, for example, um, my first encounter with a white person was the people throwing rocks and bottles at me. Would, you know, would I have gone so far as to want to sit down with the client and talk to them? Maybe not, because that, that, you know, that would have been my precedent, you know? And then mm. may, you know, ho hopefully I would have been mature enough to not judge everybody by that experience. But if that had been my, my first experience, <laughs> that, you know, that could possibly um, have shaped my whole future you know, and, mm -hmm. and I could have been a black supremacist or something, you know, because of, because of that. But I'll tell you what, the most important thing that we have, that we all have, is our credibility. And no matter what endeavor we want to do, whether we want to sell used cars or, or, or be a leader or whatever, we have to have credibility. And, you know, you only have one opportunity just one opportunity in life to make a good first impression with somebody. Mm -hmm. You may have an opportunity to make a, an impression with somebody a second, third time, maybe, but you only have one opportunity to make a good first impression because after the first time, everything else is second, third, and fourth, right? And mm -hmm. people generally judge you on their first impression of you because the first impression always sticks in their mind. Mm -hmm. and, and that's the one that's the strongest. Now it may change depending upon how strong you are and what kind of you know, charisma you have or whatnot. But um, they generally judge you on the first impression. So when, when I meet somebody, I have to be credible. I have to be transparent. And because I want to see that person again, like, like these clan people who eventually gave me their robes and hoods and stuff. It didn't happen during the, our first meeting. It, you know, it may have happened months later, in some cases, years later, because they're still growing, you know? And, but, in order for me to affect that, I had to see them time and time and time again, because I plant the seed the first time, but if I don't come back and water it, what's the point in planting it, right? And in order for me to come back, even though they don't like me, they have to at least be impressed with the first impression that I make on them. So, you know, if I say to the guy, hey, you know, I really enjoy the conversation. I really appreciate, you know, you spend the time with me. Can we get together uh, maybe two weeks from now and do a follow-up? And even, even if they don't like me, they say, yeah, that's okay. Because I made a good first impression on them. But if I was a total, you know, jackass or something like that, they'd be like, no, I'm, I'm booked up that day. Or no, I, you know, we, we're, we're done. So your credibility is, is, is your strongest asset. And I've been honest. I've been transparent. And that's what has allowed me to come back time and time again, even if somebody doesn't like me. Well, it's that ability. That, that's to what your kids have, that, that first impression. 
<laughs> right, right. No, that's great. Um, and it's and it's absolutely true as well, you know, and, and so much of society today, you have, just as you said, people are talking at each other, not talking to each other. They're not listening to one another. They're just simply, you know, the polarization right now in society is so great where both sides, whether it's Democrats or Republicans, we could, you know, even outside of the whole racial thing, just Democrats and Republicans, they're so polarized against each other that if you're a Democrat, uh, you're somehow a, a commie or, or a far leftist. And if you're a Republican, now you're a Nazi or, or, and a racist. You know, there's no dialogue between the two sides. And, and uh, it's just absolutely incredible how how polarized we're seeing society right now in today's day and age. And that's another reason why we wanted you on the show uh, this week uh, so badly is because um, I think this message to dialogue, compassion, listening, respect, all of the things that have, have made you so successful in reaching other people and planting those seeds are things that, that society today, that the American public needs to hear, whether they want to or not. We need, they need to hear it. They absolutely need this message. They have to start listening because we're seeing right now our cities are on fire. You know, there's looting and, and burning and rioting and, and different things like that. And there's also, you know, a lot of uh, good things going on too. You know, I try not to focus on just the bad stuff, the negative things. But um, I think that in, in society in general, if we had more dialogue and, and besides sitting down and talking with one another, like, like when we met in 2016, I mean, that planted a seed in me that, that uh, you know, is, is uh, turned into the friendship and the brotherhood that we have today. I mean, Daryl Davis is my brother. That's the way, that's the way I see it. And, and uh, in 2016, when we first met, if somebody would have said that, Daryl, I would have never, never believed it for a, a minute, you know, but uh, you know, things change and, and people change and, and it's all really truly comes back to that dialogue and understanding. And, and I, I think, uh, you know, what's your thoughts on the, uh, the current political situation in, in the country? Well, I think you're spot on, man. I think, um, yeah, Democrats, Republicans, you know, it's, it's, it's fierce. It's fierce out there. And, you know, there's, there's one thing, loyalty is one thing. Um, and just flat out stupidity is another thing. You know, everybody has something good about them. And everybody has some great ideas. You know, there's no, no one, one idea that fixes everything. Republicans have some great ideas. Democrats have some great ideas. But if I'm not going to vote for you because I'm a Democrat and you're a Republican, even though your idea is great, that's stupid on my part, you know, uh, and, and vice versa. You know, we, you know, it's okay to, to, to be loyal to your party, but not to the point of detriment to your country. Okay? Your party is just a small thing. Your country is a larger whole. And, you know, you're, you're only going to be in office for X amount of term until you're voted out. And then, and then even if you do get a second term, you know, you're not, you're not in that position for life. You will be voted out eventually or, you, or your term expires. So you got to look at the long, the long picture, the big picture, which is your entire country, not just your party. I mean, I, you know, I'm not really into sports and stuff, but you know, I know, you know people love their football teams. And you know, if, if your football team, you, know, you cheer them, you go to all their games, you know, you know, they're your team, and if they lose a game, you're still with them. You're still with them. You know, you're, you're their support. But if they have 10 games in a season and they lose all 10, guess what? They suck. Yeah, you can be as loyal as you want, but they suck. Yeah, they, they blew it. 
okay? So admit the other team was better and learn from the other team something that you can apply to your team, you know, so to make them better the next time around. It doesn't mean, you know, that you have to, um, you, know, condemn, you know, condemn the other team. You know, we all should, should learn from one another is what I believe. And I, and I think, you know, when we, we get news these days in sound bites, you know, just you know, that little ticker tape running under the thing. And everybody wants things instantly. You know, they don't want to hear the whole story. It's one of the little sound bites. And so I think that has contributed to this cancel culture today where, you know, I want to be heard. I'm going to say this and this is how it is. I don't hear anything else. Just these little tweets and sound bites rather than allowing somebody to say, here, here's why I believe this and give an explanation. Oh, you know what? I never thought about it like that. No, because all you got was a little sound bite. You're taking things out of context. Right. You know, we need to sit down and get to know one another. And then maybe you see my point of view. And even if you disagree with my point of view, at least you respect and understand why I believe it. And I understand why you believe your point of view. And we can get along together. But if all we hear is a little sound bite out of context, it's polarizing, as, as you put it. Yeah, that's exactly the concept, too, of, of Beyond Barriers. The reason uh, we come up with the name on that is because I believe that when you were, those of us, I speak for us that were in the movement, it's like a barrier is put up in our, in our minds, you know, or a prison of the minds where we're stuck behind this barrier. We don't see anything that's outside of the barrier or the bubble or the echo chamber. We don't see anything that's outside of that. We just hear what's going on in our in our self-made barrier in our box or in our bubble and that's all we're hearing and all of the opinions are from inside there it's almost it's very cult-like in, in many ways uh being involved in in any form of extremism whether it's uh jihadism far-right extremism far-left extremism occult uh, you know religious uh, extremism they're all a lot of uh similarities there and it, and it all boils back to that same concept is that you're stuck behind this barrier you put it up yourself nobody nobody built it there around you you did it to yourself and you're not able to hear you're not able to feel you're not able to see beyond that and and uh touch the humanity or, or listen to the humanity of the others so uh or the so-called others so when someone like yourself and what we do now as well when we reach out to people and we sit and use dialogue and we use respect and listening and compassion and empathy it opens it 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 sometimes cracks that door open just enough so the person as you said like could invite you back or would would be willing to meet with you again because you had that that positive dialogue and i, I know for me it worked and i, I could think of other other examples as well but um, and it's and it's worked in the in the process that we've used at Beyond Barriers to reach others that uh, we've helped to leave the movement. It's been the same. It's the same concept that I use and and uh, as well now and being able to learn that from you, Daryl. I mean, and uh, other incredible people like uh, Dia Khan uses the same concepts and and uh, the rest of us uh, at Beyond Barriers. Those are the concepts that we use. Is we want to listen. We want to hear and and. Uh, the things a person can learn and uh, open themselves up to. I mean, being stuck in that bubble or being stuck behind those barriers for so many years, all the things I missed out on and, and so many others of us that were in that life, uh, so many things that they just completely missed because you're stuck in that, 
in that mindset, you're stuck in that bubble. So, I mean, it's incredible when uh, someone has that ability to touch the lives of someone else and, and reach them and get them out uh, behind that. So, uh, you know, it's uh, very meaningful. It's very meaningful work that you do. It's incredibly important. Um, I didn't even know you were working on a second book. And so if you could tell the audience um, the title of your first book, and we'll uh, put up a, a link for that. And uh, also tell us a little bit about the one you're working on now. Sure. The first book is called Clandestine, spelled the K, not a C, <laughs> Clandestine Relationships. And uh, it came out in the, at the end of 1997, 1998, by New Horizon Press, a great publisher. And um, I took it out of, out of print in uh, 2014. Um, and now I'm working on the second book. The second book, which I've not titled yet, but it will have all the old material from the first book, plus updates and new stories. Because since the, um, the, the first book came out in 97, 98, uh, there have been a lot of changes in the country. Uh, we've had a black president. We've had um, more uh, immigration we have Donald Trump, we have a lot of other things, and all these things have, have, have turned the country in different directions. And of course, it has affected uh, you know, the state of, of race relations in this country. So I wanna talk, talk about that because you know, 97 was 20th century, and we're now in the 21st century. So, uh, so the new book will, uh, will include all the old stuff and transitioning into where we are today. That sounds really exciting. Uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Um, Jen, did you have any other uh, questions for Daryl? I would like to uh, hear the story about when you met August. Okay. I, I, uh, now, I, I don't think I met him in person. I talked to him on the phone, uh, unless he came to Roy Frankhauser's funeral. Do you know uh, Roy Frankhauser? Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. know who he is. I didn't know that he passed away, though. Yeah, he passed away. And uh, I was a pallbearer <laughs> at his funeral, believe it or not. Uh, I'm sure you know Mark Thomas. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Mark okay. Thomas was there too. Well, yeah. anyway, uh, Roy, I was over at Roy's house one day in Reading, Pennsylvania. And, um, and Roy says, I got somebody I want you to talk to. I said, who? He goes, hang on. So he gets on his phone, calls me, he goes, this is August Christ. And so um, he puts me on, on the phone with your dad. And, uh, and your dad and I had this conversation and, you know, we talked, I don't know, about maybe a half an hour or so on the phone. And, uh, you know, we, we had planned to meet one day next time I came up to see Roy, but uh, mm -hmm. it never happened. I mean, I did come to see Roy, but uh, I guess your dad was busy or something like that. I didn't get to see him. And then um, when Roy died, I, um, uh, some Imperial wizard down in Tennessee, uh, I, I've been in contact with Roy you know, on and off all the time. And he, he, he went from his home in Reading into a nursing home. He was that bad off. And he would call me every so often and I'd check on him and stuff. And then I got an email from this, uh, this IW down in, uh, in um, Tennessee telling me that, that Roy had passed. And he, you know, this guy didn't know me, but he said Roy always spoke very highly of me. And so mm -hmm. the guy wanted to let me know. And so um, I called the funeral home and I got the uh, date of the funeral, all that kind of stuff. And so I went up there and I walked into the funeral home and everybody freaked out because I'm the only black person, you know, coming in. And there's Mark Thomas. There's all these different people from Aryan nations and the Klan and this and the other. And they're all like looking at me like, "What the heck is going on here?" Right? And then Mark recognized me because I knew Mark. So he came over, he shook my hand, and, um, and then everybody calmed down. 
and I went over, I looked at, in, in the casket and Roy was lying in there uh, with his uh, grand dragon robe on and his white robe with his green sash and all that. And then I took a seat in the front row and um, everybody sat down and then the funeral home director came up and got behind, it was so disorganized. Funeral home, home director came up and got behind the podium, said a few words, and then he said that, uh, uh, well, nobody from the family had come and identified Roy. Roy had a daughter, but his daughter disowned him a long, long time ago. And uh, he said uh, that nobody had uh, given him a list of pallbearers uh, where there, you know, if, if there were no pallbearers out there, that they have, you know, volunteers within the funeral home that can do it. He said, you know, would, you know, would anybody like to volunteer to be a pallbearer? So I stood up and I was the first one to stand up. And everybody started looking at me. And then five other guys stood up and we were the pallbearers. So um, unless, uh, I don't think August was there at the, um, at the funeral, but uh, if he was, I would have met him then. Mm. What year was that? Gosh, this was uh, not too long ago. Maybe about, maybe eight years ago or so, eight or nine years ago. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. But I, I remember talking to him on the phone because, you know, Roy, Roy was always calling, you know, calling people on the phone for me. Mm -hmm. I remember when I was, was a kid. Were you up in the Allentown I, area or somewhere? What? Were you up in the Allentown area? That, where, where? Mark is a, we used to go to Mark Thomas's house for Bible yeah. study on Sunday uh, in McCongee. Uh-huh. So um, what I remember most about Roy when I was a kid was he would take his his glass oh, yeah. <laughs> and he would put his stick his tongue out and he would set it on his tongue just to freak us all out. <laughs> well, he did that to me too. You know, the first time I came to his house to interview him for my book, I was sitting upstairs in you know in his room and he, had, he was sitting at this table and then all of a sudden he'd go like this and his eye would fall out onto the table. I'm like, mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. see, I, I, I already knew that he had a glass eye. I'd read that somewhere. He, he lost it in a fight or something. Mm -hmm. But I mean, it freaked me out that he popped it out and then figured <laughs> out that he had one. <laughs> he used to do it all the time. I, I can't believe that he was buried in his clan yeah. robe. Yeah. That's yeah. It was his grand dragon robe. Had the green stripes <laughs> I don't know. on his sleeves. That's all my reaction to that. In fact, I tell you what, um, I, will, I will send you pictures of him in his, in, in his casket, in his robe. I will send you pictures of me carrying his casket. Somebody took pictures of the, of the funeral and um, you'll see it. I see, I, picture. I think that, that's for the listening audience. I think that's absolutely fascinating. Uh, you know, I know I've heard the story before, you know, and, and uh, I knew Roy and, and as well, but um, the fact that Daryl can get into these events that are clan affiliated is, is it's literally unheard of Daryl. Like, you are one of a kind and i'm not just saying that to patronize you or because you're my friend you truly really are one of a kind like, nobody can do that uh it, it's really amazing and i think when the the public and people out there hear about these sorts of things um to even attend to even attend uh, especially clan events it's it's completely forbidden under under clan rules and regulations and and things like that so i mean that's just a testament to the kind of human being you are and and the ability you have to touch the lives of others and i, I think it's 
incredibly fascinating, uh, I think, for the public. And, and uh, you know, I, I'm just so honored to know you and we're really happy to have you on the program and ha have you working alongside us at Beyond Barriers as well. I mean, it's, I'm honored. It's I'm honored myself, you know. And I tell you, I, I never stood for what Roy stood for. You know, Roy did a lot of bad things. But, you know, Roy made the time to sit down and talk with me and give me the interview for my book. I was very appreciative of that. Appreciative of that. And, you know, even after the book came out, you know, we stayed in contact because, you know, we, you know, we became friends. Roy was big into flea markets and the, up around Ephrata and, and Reading area, there's a lot of, a lot of free, you know, flea markets. And so I'd go up there with him and go to these flea markets and just hang out and learn different stuff from him. So, um, you know, I, I, I would not be, I would not be a real friend if, uh, if I had not attended his funeral. You know, even though I did not agree with some of the things that he stood for, you know, um, you know, he made the time for me, and that was you know the least I could do for him. You know, my husband. Um, it was a crazy story. Just uh, like the day after Jeff had told me that you were going to come on um, this podcast, my and I hadn't had a chance to say anything to my husband yet. I walked into the kitchen. And he says, hey, Jen, have you ever heard of this guy, Daryl Davis? And I said, what did you just, <laughs> caught me off guard. I said, what did you just say? Who? And he said it. I said, who exactly is it? <laughs> you know, and he explained. And I'm like, are you looking at my phone? I'm like, that's crazy. He's like, what are you talking about? He, he had came across you, um, like on YouTube somehow. And he's like, you really need to talk to this guy. This guy's awesome what he does and blah, blah, blah. You know, and then I'm like, that's crazy wild that you said that because, you know, he's coming on the podcast. He's like, no way, get out. I'm like, yeah, seriously. Yeah. So needless to say, he's, he was all excited. <laughs> but yeah, so well, you definitely, well, your name is out there, you know. And, well, I'm, and, I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to be working with you all, you know. And, you know, some you know, sometimes polarization, um, you know, it's a double-edged sword. I mean, there's good and bad to everything. And I think the, the positive thing that polarization does, as, as negative as it may be, by putting people over here on the far right and over here on the far left or whatever, the good thing that it does is it strengthens the middle because the middle doesn't want to go this way or that way. So they're, so they're their own little group, you know, and it strengthens that. And as we pull together from the middle like this, it becomes like a vortex and it pulls the left and right center because otherwise they got nobody. So they, so they're seeing strength in the middle and they begin to coming. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So it's, 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 it's counterintuitive, but it works. That's a, that's a good outlook on that. I, I like that because it, it is true. And, and, you know, doing, doing the things that we do and, and I've seen it with, with yourself where you have people on the, the right that attack you and people on the left that attack you. <laughs> I've, I've been through the same exact right. thing. It's sometimes it's 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 a hard place to stand sometimes because it's like the left will the left calls me a Nazi the right calls me a, a traitor you know or or a lefty you know and it's like right. staying there in the middle in the peace building and I know you've been through the same thing you've been I I've seen I forget where it was but I seen something where you were being called a Nazi or or yeah or, I, was called, I was called a white supremacist a white in, supremacist um, yeah. <laughs> I like how you respond to it. Tell, tell the, if you could explain to the listening audience, how do you deal with that? So someone says, Daryl Davis, you are a white supremacist. I said white power. 
No. <laughs> <laughs> so you can sit here and do that. You can't no, I mean, because, you know, they, they were so frustrated that um, they didn't know what else to call me. So, I right. mean, you know, the, the day you call me, looking at me, a white supremacist, you've lost the battle. <laughs> you know, you've lost the battle, you know? So, you know, if, if, you're, if you're that frustrated, maybe you just need to give up. <laughs> because, you know, we, 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 uh, there was a, um, these people put on this, uh, this panel discussion and it was supposed to be in uh, Camden, New Jersey, at this theater. And uh, they invited different people, you know, um, red and blue, and uh, political people, and uh, you know, race people, myself and other people, and just to have a a, a talk. That's all, a talk. And Antifa, it was going to be held in this uh, theater in Camden, and Antifa apparently called the theater and threatened to blow it up if they, if they hosted these people. And um, so the theater people panicked, of course, and canceled. So, so the sponsors had to like scramble and they got a place right next door in Philadelphia. So we all, and it was like a secret location until it was time to do the thing. I didn't even know where it was. So they called me and told me I showed up. And then uh, the after party was back in Camden at this brewery. And so at the uh, after party was advertised so the cops had like blocked up all the streets and Tifa was across the street. And um, we all were in the after party. We all were getting along fantastically. People had their own opinions, but we all were getting along fantastically. There was no violence, no yelling, no insulting, just talking, all right? And Antifa's over there protesting. And so um, I, um, I, I suggested that, uh, that they, you know, come on over and join the party. Just, you know, because it's, it was, you know, those are all white supremacists over there, and we were protesting them. Well, no, they all were not white supremacists over there, you know. So I invited them to come over, and they, and they said no, you know, they, they want nothing to do with white supremacists. I said I'm not a white supremacist. I'm over here talking, you know. And then uh, one of them said, told me I was a white supremacist. <laughs> so I said, you know, you, you've lost that battle. Right, right. And, and that's just it. You know, it's like if they disagree with something and, and uh, I, catch, I catch some flack for, for calling them out for some of their hypocrisy and, and things like that. And, and the thing is, is, if you're not even willing to sit down and, and discuss, discuss things or have dialogue and automatically your answer to everything is you're a white supremacist, you're a racist and that, I mean, that's, that's just another form of extremism as far as, as far as I'm concerned. They are no more open-minded and, and again, I'm painting a broad brush. I'm not saying every one of them, but a lot of them, <clears throat> many of them are no better than the movement and the people that they claim to be fighting against. Because just as people in the uh, white power movement look and judge other people based on opinions or the skin color or the religion and, and are closed minded in that manner, the um, far left extremists, you know, the Antifa and, and people from that side are just as bigoted and hateful, except it's for them, it's anyone that doesn't agree with, uh, and again, I'm using a broad brush. I don't mean all of them. I should say many of them um, react in that manner where, you know, everything's racist or everything is, is this or that. And, um, and the propensity for violence is, is incredible there as well. So it's just another form of extremism. And, and we do need to find that 
what I, what I believe is that we need to find that middle ground. We need to find where we can come together as a country, as a people, not as different races, but as one human race and, and work together towards a, a positive goal for everyone. Strengthen the middle and that will pull the size towards, towards center. I guarantee it. Absolutely. Jen, any other uh, input, feedback, suggestions, ideas, questions? The only thing that I keep thinking about is I've been, it's been bothering me for a few days now, is the whole, and I know we don't like to go into politics on here, but the whole, as the polarization with the whole politically is just so rampant right now. And the hate, even from people who are not super far right, or super far left. The name calling is out of completely out of control. Media, um, it, it's just somebody makes a comment and out of nowhere, there's, you know, 50 comments just calling the, the original commenter names, personal, you know, personal attacks and names. And it's just driving me, it's driving me crazy. I think, you know, anytime, I mean, it's not justified, but you know, what you're saying is absolutely right. And, and, and the name calling is not justified. But I think anytime there is change, people, people get, get anxious and they lose control. Uh, right after high school, before, before going on to college, I, uh, I worked for a month uh, as a mover for a moving company. And we would move people, say, from right here in Washington, D.C., down to Florida or from you know this town in Maryland to that town in Maryland or whatever, and the people were like all excited about moving to their new home or whatever. You know they're all up for it, etc. But then moving day comes, you know because you know we know we, we go over there to to give them an estimate of how much it's going to cost to move X amount of boxes and pianos and furniture, etc. So and they're all excited, and then moving day moving day comes and we show up with the big van, and they realize you know they're being uprooted. You know they've been in this home for thirty years. And as soon as you go in there and you start lifting their sofa, they like freak out because change, change is occurring and they're no longer going to be at this house. And, and they lose it, you know, they, they just flip out. And it's, it's something, you know, people just don't, you know, they don't do well with change until, until, until the change happens and then they get accustomed to it and then they move on from there. It's like, it's like somebody who's, who's in an, uh, an abusive relationship. And this happens to men, um, but it happens more so with women. Uh, somebody who's in an, an abusive relationship and their girlfriends keep telling them, leave this guy, this guy is no good. You know, you, he's, you know, be done with him, he's dangerous, blah, blah, blah. But they stay in the relationship. And because they're more accustomed to what they know than what they don't know. And then finally, when they get beat within inches of their life and they finally leave, they finally leave. And after a while, they get involved in another relationship with somebody, a new person. But that new person has the same attributes as the old person. This guy's a beater too. Why? Because it's what they're familiar with. It doesn't make them a bad person, but people do not want to change. And it happens with men too, you know, but just more so with, with women. Um, we have to be able to embrace something new. Something and you know something that changes, because you know 
this, this is what evolution and society is all about. We're always growing. You know, you want more for your kids, uh, Jen, than you had for yourself. I know that to be a fact. Absolutely. Okay. So that, what, what is that going to require? It's going to require change. It's going to require changing the things that happened to you in your life so that they don't have it in their life. And, and even if they have the best life in the world, all right, when they grow up, they're going to want things better for their kids, your grandchildren, et cetera, because change, change evolves. We grow with change and, and, and we should embrace it, especially if it's heading in a positive direction, but not like, you know, hey, you know, if it's not fixed, I mean, if it's not broken, don't fix it. Things can always improve. Right. I agree completely. My closing statement will be this. <clears throat> Let's not close. Let's just take a break. And one day we will do part two. Agreed. A hundred percent. Always, always the joy to have you on the uh, program or anything that we do together, Daryl. Uh, hopefully we'll uh, be able to continue and uh, get out there on the road again once uh, COVID is done and over with. And it's a, it was a great honor for us uh, both to have you on the program tonight and all the work that you do out there and you've been doing for, for so many years. I mean, we really admire you. We're really uh, honored to have you on board with uh, Beyond Barriers and, and uh, you're an incredible human being and a, a wonderful friend as well. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. And, and I owe you a, a trip very soon to come to Detroit. And Jennifer, you're not that far from me. I'm right over here in Maryland, so we can get together sometime. I'll just you know, find a day. I'll drive up there. Sounds good. All right. Sounds good. Thank you all very much for having me. All right. Thanks, Daryl.